discussion of uh, Romans 7 and 8 uh, before we proceed on in Romans. Um, and I began last week just talking a little bit about that we've talked the, about the reason Christ died. And clearly that uh, it's from the idea that he will, uh, he's founded a new form of subjectivity. Um, that we've passed from one kind of subject to a, a different kind of subject. Part of the, uh, what happens to us in Christianity is that we are made aware of something about ourselves, about our condition, I think of which we have no awareness. Uh, Jesus even says this from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. It describes not only the fact that they have unwittingly killed the Son of God, uh, but the Gospels record that the most, uh, those most subject to sin uh, are those who are blinded to the reality of who Christ is. And the idea is that Christ died to dispel their blindness. And the question then is, how does he do this? And that's what I would like to talk about today. <clears throat> and of course, the main thing is that he exposes the lie of sin. And in exposing the lie of sin, he enables us, he gives us the ability uh, to love one another. Um, we've been fostered, we've been enculturated into a world that the, guy, the writer of John describes as uh, one of darkness. Uh, we are guided in our thinking, Paul says, by the principalities and powers. We have been deceived, as Genesis describes it. Cain is blinded, you know, by his jealousy and the fact that Abel is accepted by God and he is not. He's blinded to his own condition. One of the long stories in the, in the uh, Old Testament that reveals this, and it's kind of a key story for the purpose of the, who the Jews are and their ancestry, is the story of Joseph and his brothers. I think that this is, uh, in the, writer, the language of the writer of Hebrews, this is a kind of foreshadowing then, of the reason that Christ died that we can see Joseph, Joseph as a type of Christ. But the story is one long attempt to get them to put themselves in the place of their brother Joseph. And I'm going to go through the story if you want to look at it. Uh, it's in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 42 and 43. Uh, but in the story... It just keeps hitting these high points. And I just want to touch on the high points a little bit. Um, <clears throat> in the, you know, the picture is that they've sold Joseph into slavery and he's risen to be a king and they're experiencing famine. Uh, and they go to Egypt and the first thing that Joseph does, he confines one of the brothers. Uh, and he says that while you remain confined, I'm going to test you. I'm going to see if your word is true. 
uh, because I think you're spies. So, of course, Joseph knows that it's his brothers, but throughout this, Joseph is putting them in the same situation that he had been in, that they could learn what it was they have done to him, that they could experience what it feels like. Uh, He puts them in prison for three days. I don't know if there's a significance in the three there, but of course, that's the period that Christ spends in the grave. And Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. Let one of your brothers be confined in your prison, but for the rest of you go and carry the grain for the famine of your households. So he keeps doing this to them. He says, okay, one of you, you have to give up your brother. You have to relinquish one of the brothers and the rest of you can go. Uh, And the idea, of course, he wants them to go back and bring Benjamin. Because Benjamin is the the love, you know, the the one that their father loves more than any. Um, That he is the one who has replaced Joseph in the adoration that the father has for him. They said to one another, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because this is their discussion. And they're discussing this in Hebrew. And they don't know that Joseph speaks Hebrew. He's just spoken to them in Egyptian. So they're having this discussion right in front of him. Uh, We're guilty of concerning our brother. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. That is Joseph. When we put him in that ditch, in that hole in the ground and pretended like or, or we had considered killing him. He pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Joseph hears this. You know, oh, they're getting the point. They're understanding what I'm trying to convey to them. Uh, He breaks down crying. He leaves the room. He can't stand it. Uh, Reuben says, I told you guys, do not sin against the boy. And you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning of his blood. We're all in trouble. And uh, then he returned to them and spoke to them. He, he took Simeon from them and bound him before the eyes. He says, I'm going to keep Simeon until you come back with Benjamin. And of course, every time they leave, he fills their bags with gold, the gold that they supposedly have given him. So that they're put in the position of looking like they've stolen this money. Uh, They go, they open the sack, and they see the money. Their hearts sank, and they turn trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? And as it came about, they were emptying the sacks. Uh, They all had money in their sacks. They're all implicated. And they go back to Jacob and he says, you've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. And then, you know, each each scene, one of the brothers seems to get it. 
Reuben says, You may put my two sons to death. If I do not take, you know, he's going to take Benjamin. He's kind of going to come back with him. Put him in my care and I will return to you. And Jacob says, oh, you're going to go down with your brother. He's already dead. He's as good. You know, one's dead and one's as good as dead. And now you're going to take my, my son, you know, that I love most. And so he didn't, they didn't go back. But then the famine in the land is such that they have to return to Egypt. And Judah then says, I will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible, he says to Jacob. I do not bring him, if I do not bring him back and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. And then they go back and they take Benjamin and meet with Joseph again. And this time he puts his silver chalice in the grain. Um, and they go out and they all, you know, the, then as soon as they're gone, Joseph sends people to go out and get them again. Uh, why have you repeat paid me? The man says, evil for good. And they open, you know, they go through the bags. They say, oh, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. But if we did, any one of us that has done it, you can take him and enslave him. And you know whose bag the chalice is in, right? It's in Benjamin's bag. So the one that they've all promised, you know, that they would bring back. <clears throat> they say, with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. So he said, now let it also be according to your words. Okay, you said it. Whoever's got the chalice, we're going to enslave him. <clears throat> and Judah says, you know, when they find it in Benjamin's sack, and this is, the, this is the culmination of this long story. And I believe this is the, the very purpose of this story. I believe that here we come to the heart of the gospel. Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? They're back before Joseph. How can we justify ourselves? He's saying we can't do it. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. We're sinners. We've sold our brother into slavery. And in some way, it's coming back on us. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves. Both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said... Far be it for me to do this. The man who, in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Joseph says, no, I'll just keep the boy. I'll just keep Benjamin. You guys just go on. And of course, he's putting them in exactly the position <clears throat> that they had been in with him. Saying, oh, don't worry about your brother. You are free. I'm going to keep your brother. Now therefore, this is Judah speaking. Please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. There's, you know, there's the lesson. Judah is able to put himself 
in the place of his brother. Instead of sacrificing his brother that he might live, Judah is now willing to sacrifice himself that his brother might live. How shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, everyone leave the room. So there was no man with him except Joseph who made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And the boy, the brothers, they're, they're so frightened, they're so dismayed that they still can't speak. Joseph says to them again, please come closer to me. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And I've been restored unto you. There is the picture, you know, of the cross of Christ. No longer would they kill their brother that they might live. But here are ones who would lay down their lives that their brother might live. And in that moment, Joseph, their brother, is restored to them. Here is, I believe, why Christ took up the cross. So that we too could put off the blinders. The blinders of jealousy. The blinders of selfishness. And say here is my brother for whom I would give my life. This is the story that gets repeated again and again in the Old Testament. And it culminates in the life of Christ. You remember the story of the wisdom of Solomon and the two prostitutes. That come and they each then are claiming that the baby, the child, is their own. And the one says, you know, Solomon says, well, let's just cut the baby in two. And the one says, good idea. I'll take my pound of flesh and go home. And the other says, no, let the baby live. The other woman. She relinquishes her rights that the child might live. This is the story of David and Nathan. You know, David slays Uh, the wife or the husband of Bathsheba, Uriah. And Nathan comes in and tells him the little story about the man, the old man who has a little lamb who's like a pet to him. And the evil ruler, you know, of the the farm next door comes over and says, I'm going to eat your lamb for dinner. And Nathan says, David, what should we do to a man? Who would do such a terrible thing? And David says we should punish him to the utmost. And Nathan points his finger at David and says, David, you're the man. You're the man. It just keeps, that's the the story that keeps repeating itself. We would sacrifice the other. And yet we're blind to our own sinfulness. This is the story of the disciples, you know. Uh, They would, you know, Peter would betray Christ at one moment. And then the blindness is lifted. As long as we are willing to sell our brother down the river, 
have the other suffer instead of us, I believe we have no part in true Christianity. That's the perverse understanding we looked at last week. When we are willing, though, to take up the cross ourselves and stand with those who are suffering, stand with those who are oppressed, then I believe we've joined the way for Christ. And our need for revelation and our need for Christ, our need for the, the life and death of Christ, arises because of the peculiar predicament that we're all a part of. We're among the brothers who would kill Joseph. We're with the prostitute because of jealousy and pride would sacrifice the baby. We would not recognize ourselves just as David did not recognize himself. And so we have a need for an alternative kind of person. Maybe an alternative uh, culture. An alternative way of life. Which we believe is provided to us in the body of Christ. In the new kingdom that he's inaugurated with the cross. So that's why Christ died. The ability to see the predicament. The matrix of sin. The lie and deception that has been, you know, we've participated in. It depends upon being able to see it from an alternative place. Uh, To state it differently... The law or the principalities and powers which frame our consciousness that, uh, you know, just our way of thinking, it needs to be displaced. And I believe this then involves a kind of two-step process. We must not imagine that the way that things are, the given realities, the worldview that we've been enculturated into, is the same as our understanding as it should be in Christ. We need to be able to identify the nature of sin as it, has conf- it is confounded in our understanding with our perception of the world. So, we've not realized, we've often not realized, that as Christians we really need to just change up our worldview. Uh, we have sometimes, I think, simply attempted to add Christianity to our already existing worldview. And connected with this, sin has often been mystified and relegated to the individual, the personal. Do you remember, do you know who uh, Charles Finney was? He was a famous revivalist, you know, uh, on the order of Moody and Billy Graham. Uh, And he defined sin in a way that I think you often hear, hear it defined. He said that sin is the individual choosing to break God's law. Now that sounds pretty good until you think about it a little bit. First of all, it fails to take into account uh, the idea that we've already perverted the law. It's not that we just set out, you know, uh, and, and we have a law that we break, but we've received a law through the family, through the church, through the state, uh, that no one comes to individually. We come to that law corporately. Our access to the law is filtered to us through the corporate relations, the worldview that we are born into. Our understanding of the law, according to Paul, is already skewed by sin. Finney's understanding also overlooks the reality that breaking the law has concrete effects 
in the relational spheres in which selfhood is formed. Uh, we are, you know, that it's not just, oh, I break God's law and it's between me and God. No, it's like with the story of Joseph and his brothers. It's like the story of the two prostitutes. It's like the story of David. It's like the story of the disciples. What's at stake is not that a law has been broken, but that a relationship has been broken. That a love relationship has been undone. According to law, according to what is acceptable, you know, Joseph is the law. He's the the embodiment of the Pharaoh's law. The one with the silver chalice. You know, he must be enslaved forever. There's the law. Uh, But that's not the point of the story of any of these stories. It's not a story about law. Do we have the power, is the issue here, do we have the power to come to God on the basis of our own understanding, our own consciousness, our own apprehension of the law? And this is the story of theology. But many have said, yes, that we just already understand the problem. That, you know, this is Anselm of Canterbury. We can think the greatest thought. uh, And through the power of our own logic, the power or reason or law of reason, we can come to God. The problem is that Anselm's greatest thought reduces God to the realm of our thought. Proofs for God seem to also end up being proofs for the power of human thought. And this pertains to the death of Christ and the meaning of the death of Christ. Because I'm afraid we've inherited an understanding that is on the basis of this sort of reason or rationalism. Anselm's project of proving God, you know, in the ontological argument is also his project in why God, why a God-man, why God died on the cross. He's going to give us an explanation that's just on the basis of the law. The reason Anselm is important, uh, that he's become important, because basically that's the teaching that we've all received. When we ask the question, why did Christ die on the cross? I believe that what we're often hearing is not the sort of explanation I've been giving you, for the past several weeks, we've just looked at the, you know, the, the scripture. But I think the explanation is actually Anselm's explanation. Um, Christ died in this understanding for the law. And the death of Christ is explained as part of an economy of the law. This is called the doctrine of divine satisfaction. So the law is determinative not just of what sin is or disobedience, um, you know, that's true, right? That what is the purpose of the law? It tells us what sin is. But in Anselm's understanding, it's also determinative of the meaning and method of the atonement. Why Christ died then uh, is completely explained uh, as a fulfillment of the law. Uh, He says it's based on the rational necessity. And that's actually what we're talking about here. When he says law, he means the law of rational necessity. Uh, It's based on the law of rational necessity of a limited whole. 
or what he calls a regulated system of forgiveness. What he means by regulated, we can completely work this out according to the legal system of the day, according to reason. Anselm says, why did Christ die? Well, he died in order to satisfy the honor of God that has been impugned, and also then to fill the place in heaven from which the angels have fallen, which is a limited or measurable amount. So what he's doing is creating this economy of exchange that will be regulated entirely by the law. The absolute perfect number thought to inhabit the heavenly city. And the absolute, I'm just quoting Anselm Miller. And the absolute rationality of the argument through, both throughout, they're depending then, this rational system, upon a purely rational argument. So, he's saying we can calculate this. We can lay out a law of, as to why Christ died. There is a law or logic of exchange. He even compares it to money. That, oh, there was a, you know, it's like an exchange in an economy of money. I'm afraid that what Anselm has given us is simply an economy of desire. We've talked about that desire is actually pervasive. Uh, There's only so much salvation to go around. It's a zero-sum game. It's a closed system. Um, And so uh, Christ has in some way made it possible for us to enter that economy. I would like for us to to get rid of that notion. Uh, I think it's just mistaken. I think it's a misunderstanding of I think it's, in fact, an aggravation of the problem. And maybe that's the the issue here. That it really doesn't address why Christ died. It's a rational explanation based on law. But the whole system, then, is one in which the law is left up and running. Christ dies to satisfy God. The requirements of the law are met. But wait a minute. Does that mean that the law is still, you know, uh, up and running? So my point here is Christ died to address a problem that cannot be understood on the basis of a principle or a law. We are not, that we are not otherwise, you know, uh, able to be put into place. Christ died to found a new form of human subject. Christ did not die primarily to meet a requirement of the law, but in fact to displace a deception which involved the law. The problem is not the law. The problem is that we have been deceived in regard to the law. Paul does not see the law, other than he talks about the law of Christ, uh, but he does not see the law as primary for the Christian. Or as the mediator of the relationship in Christ. We do not serve according to the law. The law for Paul mediates and governs the economy of sin. The problem of sin. But the law is secondary in the economy of salvation. And that's the new economy. That's the new system that's ushered in by Christ. The law could not deliver life, but God has done, Paul says in Romans 8.3, he has delivered life 
and has done what the law could not do. Christ has ushered in the life promised by the law. So the way God did this was to condemn sin, not Jesus, though it was in the flesh of Jesus that sin was put to death. In Romans 8, 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. As N.T. Wright puts it, this is some way from saying, as many have, that God desired to punish someone and decided to punish Jesus on everyone else's behalf. That's Anselm, that's Calvin. So Christ did not die because of the law. Christ died because of sin and a misconstrual, a skewing of the law. In Paul's picture, there is an alternative economy. The promise of the law is fulfilled in that the promise of life, which it could not deliver, is delivered through Christ. The law itself has taken on its correct place in Christ as secondary to what God has done in Christ. Uh, to bring life and restore relationship to God by dispelling, undoing the lie of sin. Uh, And he's done that with the truth of Christ. So the issue is not law and its fulfillment. The issue is deception and its, its exposure in the truth of Christ. The law only has, and this is Romans 8, 4, I think the point, it only has an enduring role in condemning sin in sinful man but we are no longer under the condemnation of the law and so the alienation between you know this is the picture that we've had there is this alienation between God between our fellow man in which we would literally sell our brother down the river in which we would cut the baby in two in which we are controlled by jealousy envy in which we're alienated within This has produced a misperception of the law. And this is overcome in the understanding that the proper role of the law is to point to life in Christ. Participation in Christ inaugurates resurrection life, which is inclusive of a manner of life that we now presume control over the body you know this is that we live out the righteousness that the law could not deliver but in Christ that is delivered to us so the split between you know what the alienation within ourselves is undone so I'm describing a very simple thing that is I think revolutionary in our understanding salvation may be seen primarily in terms of the unity that we have as a part of the body of Christ. Don't underplay this notion of unity. Unity with God. Unity and love with our friends and neighbors in the fellowship of the body of Christ. Unity within ourselves. Unity with creation. And this stands in contrast to the sinful subject who is alienated. And the law then was just a pointer to that alienation. Uh, this alienation that was from God, it's grounded then in a lie. You know, the the lie of Satan himself. You won't die. So the pervasive and systemic nature of this lie 
is that's what's pictured with the story of Joseph and his brothers. They believe a lie. That's the problem of Cain. That's the problem of, you know, the, the prostitute that would slay the child. That's the problem of David. We've been deceived. We're blinded. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But now we know. That's the point that the deception is exposed. The blinders are lifted. The truth of Christ exposes the death-dealing nature and defeat of the law of sin and death, which is the means by which the sinful subject would obtain life. He would obtain life at the expense of his brother. He would obtain life through the sacrifice of the other. And Jesus then, I believe through in all four Gospels, touches upon this economy. Whoever wants to save his life, like Joseph and his brothers, like David, you know, like the stories of the Old Testament, what happens to those guys? He says, that's the one who loses his life. He doesn't have life at all. But whoever loses his life, like Judah, like Reuben, for me and the gospel. This is the faith chapter that we read this morning in Hebrews. That he who would sacrifice his life, he who would take up his cross for the gospel will save it. So the contrast is between a system of self-salvation in which we attempt to save our life and in the process destroy anything that's valuable in our life. And that's contrasted with the salvation of Christ in which losing this sort of life is part of salvation. So... The conclusion, dying with Christ, can be understood as the death or the end to investing life in this death-dealing, alienating lie. The defeat of sin and death. And the beginning of a new life in which we're in communion with Christ. We're in communion with the body of Christ, the members of his body of Christ, through the spirit of life. And salvation then is the means by which the subject of sin and its destructive nature are, under, are, are understood, it's you know, exposed, that's the revelation, and it's displaced by the life of Christ. Let's sing.